You're listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, brought to you by Vespa, nature's catalyst for optimizing fat metabolism. Hi, everybody. This is Peter Defty, your host for the Food for Thought OFM podcast with our co-host Naomi Land from Australia. Hi, Naomi. How's things uh, doing in Tomorrowland? Good morning. Um, It's pretty good here. Yeah, it's Monday, actually. Okay, well, good. It's Sunday here, and today we have the lovely Dr. Kayla McDaniel um, on the program, and she's going to be a regular on our our Food for Thought because she wants to get you thinking, but uh, get you thinking in a fun way because Kayla's moniker, as she goes by, is the Naughty Nutritionist. Welcome, Kayla. Hi, Naughty Nutritionist. Thank you. Hi, I'm here from the land of enchantment. Enchanté. <laughs> okay. So, Naomi, why don't you take it from here? Let's uh, get this thing going and just dive right in with uh, Dr. McDaniel, or Dr. Daniel. Uh, Dr. Daniel. Um, That's right. Naughty Kayla. That's what I like. <laughs> <laughs> Kayla, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, sure. As the naughty nutritionist, I am outrageous and humorous, uh, full of mischief, and I like to tell the truth that's too hot to handle. <laughs> so that's oh a, yeah, I baby. <laughs> well, part of it is people are absolutely overwhelmed with all the information, all the inconsistent and contradictory information. So I like to provide good, solid information, but in a way that's that's fun, that's entertaining. So I think that just makes it a lot more desirable for people. Yes, definitely. And there's so much information out there, isn't there? Oh, there is. And that's what overwhelms people. And so many people are just feeling they don't know what to do. They don't know how to cut through all all the contradictions. And I like to make it more fun. Yeah, and that's why we call this food for thought, because we want to nourish people's brains as well as get them on the right diet, exercise, lifestyle. And um, I think you have that same goal. And, and so, Kayla, why don't you start off by telling us first about your own personal journey that, that led you to becoming a, uh, a PhD in, in what you do. And uh, then we'll go through some of your history in that um, so that people understand that you really do know what you're talking about and, you know, between the three of us, we'll help them cut through all that uh, noise, as I call it, out there in the nutrition world. Sure. I, I had earlier careers in photography and art and even before that in music as a classical musician. And at a certain point in my 30s, I realized I was really unhealthy. I didn't have the energy. I didn't have the mental balance. Uh, I was definitely skinny, uh, but this was long before the era of the skinny bitches. And um, I wanted to be more sturdy, to have um, more substance to myself. Were, were, you a, were you a skinny bitch before skinny bitches were invented? Well, I guess some people might say so, but I don't think it's a it's a good thing to be bitchy. Okay. So I think you know mental mental balance and calm and excitement when it's appropriate is good, and anger properly focused when it's appropriate is good. But just irritability and bitchiness, no. Wait, but what, did you have episodes of that when you were um, at that point? Were you vegan? What were you a sad dieter? What were you doing at that point? Uh, 
Well, I've been a sad dieter, and in college I discovered the four food groups of ice cream, Hershey bars, Coca-Cola, and Fig Newtons. And mood swings. And my health went. And mood swings and complexion problems and put on some weight back in college. So I was a sad dieter for quite a while. And when I started exploring new diets, well, guess what? Vegan diets went into the mix. I tried live food combining. I tried raw juicing. I tried vegan diets. I tried Ayurvedic, macrobiotic, you name it. I tried it. And it wasn't until I found an omnivorous diet that included animal products that I started to really start to heal up. What? So what wow. happened from there? Where did you go from there? Well, where I went from there was uh, I decided to go back to school and earn a PhD in nutrition. And I wanted to help other people and... I was absolutely fascinated with the information at this point, but my background had not initially been in science. So I had to go back. I had to do the math. I had to do the science and then finally uh, have the academic background so I could get into a legitimate PhD program. And I was very blessed to go to the Union Institute and University when they still had a program in nutritional sciences with the legendary H. Ira Fritz. And he worked with a whole lot of our top nutritionists, people like well, the late Sherry Lieberman, the late Robert Crayon, um, Kathleen Desmaisons, uh, many, many, many very capable people. And I also had on my committee uh, the late Mary Ennig, and she was a pioneer fat researcher, uh, discovered hydrogenated fats and their dangers back before anybody else was talking about it. So she's a real hero for many of us. Wow. Yeah, Mary, Mary's a um, Dr. Ennig uh, published her pioneering work on trans fats back in the 70s. And I work with her in the early 2000s. Okay. And when did wow, you get yeah. Well, when I got my PhD, my dissertation was on the dangers of soy foods. And I turned that into a more popular book that's called The Whole Soy Story, The Dark Side of America's Favorite Health Food. And with that book, um, I met all sorts of amazing people. Uh, Dr. Mercola, I got on the Dr. Oz show. Uh, many, many uh, openings came about because of that book. Wow. Now, Mary Ennick was a real pioneer, and, and she didn't take crap from anybody because uh, uh, when she, when she, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm actually good friends with Beverly Teeter, who was her grad student, who, mm -hmm. who actually did the research on that work. And, um, you know, gosh, they, they were getting really uh, hammered by the industries at that time. So uh, you, you were really lucky to be able to have worked with her. She must have mentored you because I know that, you know, in that era and her eras earlier, it was very tough for women and they had to walk a very um, delicate line. They had to be tough as nails and determined as nails, but they still had to be a woman. Absolutely. And she, I was very blessed to have her as my mentor and on my committee. And as you said, she is, she is quite a tough mentor, but a very fair one. And she didn't miss a beat. I mean, you couldn't get away with anything. <laughs> so I worked hard and I was just very blessed to have her on my committee. It was, it was a priceless experience. Yes. 
I could imagine. Yeah. And do you think that it's molded you into um, the person that you are today? I think I really grew through that PhD program. Uh, I became someone who is able to think things through much more thoroughly than, than I ever had prior to that. And question things too, is that right, Kayla? Question things, investigate things, uh, basically have a good bullshit detector. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and as you know, for, for good science, the, the, the first thing you have to question is your own uh, belief system and question yourself. And, and, you know, that's part of the hypothesis is to test to see if you are actually wrong. Yeah, and in the field of nutrition, there are so many things that get repeated so often, people just accept that they're true. And when you really start to investigate, it's, yeah, where's the research to back that? Everybody says it, everybody thinks it's true, but is it? Yeah, and, and, yeah, and I think when you look at nutritional science, it, it, it's I would have to say, and this is me talking as an empiricist, but from what I've seen, uh, easily over 80% of the nutritional quote-unquote peer-reviewed studies are when you look at the experimental design, look at the stats, look at who's fund the funding sources for the department that did the study, uh, it's pretty bad. It seems like it's so hard to get really good work published these days. Would you agree? I would agree. And a lot of the old studies that were done many, many decades ago were actually better studies because they were honest studies with honest researchers. It was done with a lot of integrity for the sake of science because they were curious, because they wanted to know. And now most of the studies that are coming out are all funded by big pharmaceutical or big food or uh, various um interests that want the studies to show certain things yeah, yeah no yeah. so so you got your phd and then how did you go from there um after you published on soy and then wrote the whole soy story and, and that's going to be something we'll get to in a, in a future podcast because i do want you to tell me that tell our audience your whole story of how you got into all these conferences and overheard people say things so um <laughs> <laughs> but well, let's let's move on with with our topic today. How did today, you become which is, the naughty nutritionist? Uh, I was doing a media training in California, and it was with an amazing man named Joel Roberts, who is the radio host on the top drive by Los Angeles station. And Los Angeles, of course, has the biggest radio stations because people are trapped in their cars for many minutes every day. So that's where top radio is. And he was doing media training, and I said something that was rather naughty about soy. And he said, oh, you are a naughty nutritionist. <laughs> and it was like, bingo. I, it felt so me. <laughs> and he got my mischief. And one of the things he said is, there are a lot of nutritionists. A lot of them are very articulate and very smart. But you're the only one who's got a sense of humor. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So your career as a nutritionist, um, do you work with clients or do you tend to um, do a lot of tripping away? Um, I work with some clients. I have a small practice and I do speaking. I speak at conferences and I do a lot of radio. I do podcasts. Uh, I write books, write blogs, uh, so a real, real mixture of things. 
Yeah, um, you've been ripped. Sorry. Oh, no, no. Go ahead, Nels. Um, so let's touch with um, soya and fermented cod oil and other foods that you're ex you've exposed. Well, that goes in the, into the I'm too hot to handle part of my personality and part of my brand. And so the first big project I did was exposing the dangers of soy. And of course, soy has been pushed as a miracle food that heals everything, you know, even ingrown toenails. So I wrote 400 pages on the dangers of soy. And more recently, I've exposed the dangers of something called fermented cod liver oil, which turns out to be not fermented and not from cod. It's actually a pollock liver oil. And it's rancid and putrid and low in fat-soluble vitamins. And yet, because it was widely promoted by the Weston A. Price Foundation, it's been eaten, uh, consumed widely in the Weston Price and paleo communities. You've, you've also done some other um, sort of exposés and given some really good information. So a lot of that information, of course, has been controversial. I mean, it, it also includes work on seed oils too, doesn't it? Uh, some. That's not really my specialty, but I work with Dr. Enig, so got some background in all those things. Okay, wonderful. Well, today our topic is on, on broth, and we want to stay focused on that. So the reason we got you on is, is broth is something that we recommend in the OFM broadcast that almost everybody get on and use, and, and broth is also very topical and trendy these days. So why not have the person who... Um, has the the meat and the inside knowledge on this on and so why don't you tell us a little bit about um, why you would be the person to have um, you have a great book out and uh, also been doing a lot of research in this area yes uh, the book is nourishing broth an old-fashioned remedy for the modern world and my co-author is Sally Fallon Morell. So I wrote about the history of broth, the science of broth, and she did the recipes on the how-tos on how to make the nourishing broth. And my background on that actually goes back into the 1990s before I even began my PhD program because I had the unique opportunity to spend a lot of time with Dr. John F. Pruden, who is called the father of cartilage therapy. And I was going to write a book with Dr. Pruden, and it was going to be one of those books with a title like Cartilage Power or The Miracle of Cartilage, something like that. And I did many interviews with him, and he, of course, was using a supplement, cartilage capsules. And he was a scientist, so he wanted to have measurable doses uh, so he could determine what kind of healing effect it had. He did stunning studies and discovered cartilage was healing many, many problems, everything from digestive problems to autoimmune problems to wound healing. And as I worked on this exciting project with him, I started to say to myself, okay, how can we get cartilage in our diet? and realized that, well, the paleo man might have been chewing on the drumstick or whatever, and that might be one way to get cartilage, but another would be to make broth. So that's where it started for me back in the 1990s. 
And then I did a paper on the healing benefits of proline and glycine, which of course are key amino acids we find in broth. And that was probably 2003. So it goes back quite a ways. And so um, tell us a little bit about your background with, with broth and your book. Well, my background with it probably goes back to Julia Child being on TV. So I'm in college and all our friends were tuning into her because she was just totally crazy wonderful. So every week we're watching her, you know, dropping the chickens and, you know, making the jokes. And she's, she's got the stock pot and she's, she's, making, she's making amazing soup. And um, so she was sort of a hero to us. I mean, we laughed at her, but we laughed with her. We, we uh, all really, truly loved her. Care, careful, <laughs> Kayla. You're dating both you and myself on that one, because I still remember the Julia Child uh, show. <laughs> so Julia was one of our heroes, and... You know, I had made broth before I saw Julia Child. I grew up in a family that cooked. I grew up on a farm. We gardened. We we butchered chickens and we, we made soup. We made broth, but we also had Campbell's soup. I had a pretty standard American diet in my background, but I've always cooked. And it really was that whole experience with Dr. Pruden that started me thinking about broth and ways to get cartilage as part of the diet as opposed to a pill. Yeah, you know, and, and speaking of Julia Child, she not only did a lot of things with soup and broth, but she railed about the whole cholesterol thing uh, later on when that started to become an issue. Oh, God, I, I remember she just railed about it, and she lived to be 94, was it? Uh, a little younger than that, but, you know, we, we joked that the butter and the, the butter and the cream caught up with her. <laughs> <laughs> So tell us um, your quickest or easiest broth recipe. Well, a lot of people like to, say, roast a chicken on Sunday, enjoy it with the family, and then cut off some of that leftover chicken and make, say, chicken curry or make a chicken salad sandwich or do something with it. And then you've got the carcass. So let's take that carcass, let's put it in a stock pot or in a crock pot, and add some celery and some onions and a little vinegar. And if we really want to be sure we're getting good gelatin from it, you know, that good jiggly stuff, add a few chicken feed. And it is such an easy way to get the broth. I and like I like the jiggly. Even... <laughs> jiggly, yeah. <laughs> But people who don't even want to cook in the way of roasting a chicken, which is so easy, you can buy a uh, rotisserie chicken, say, at Whole Foods, eat it, and then use the carcass and make broth. It is so easy. Yeah, and one of the key points of, of, of our OFM program, Kayla, is I'm kind of a get-or-done kind of guy. I'm, I'm not for most people. I call it a program for the rest of us because most people don't have the time to go to Whole Foods or go to the farm to get their pick out their cow or their organically raised chicken. And so, you know, this, the rotisserie chicken or the chicken in the supermarket is just a great way to get really cost-effective, quick nutrition. And then by making the stock and 
you 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 get everything out of that chicken and, and in our house i use the we use the rotisserie chickens because it it allows you to go to the supermarket and 20 minutes later you have dinner on the table and those rotisserie chickens are so small that we actually give the scraps to the dog because the bones are still soft and after you make broth with them they're not a danger to the dog so we actually get everything out of that chicken and then what you're saying is perfect about taking the chicken meat and making chicken chicken salad or curries out of them because part of our program is based on high fat, moderate protein diet. So it's a really great way for people to go through a whole very easy and super cost effective way of feeding themselves. It's very, very easy. And people who are reluctant to make broth because maybe they don't want to deal with the messiness of the skins and the cartilage and the bones. Uh, there are several good products, uh, gelatin and collagen from grass-fed uh, cows. So that's an option. Some people prefer to just drink their coffee and add some collagen hydrolysate to it. And that gives us some of the benefits of gelatin, but it's in the cup of coffee or in the cup of tea or just other foods. There's, there's just so many ways to include the, the nourishment without spending all day in the kitchen. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's one of the things I also do is most of the time I'll add a tablespoon of gelatin to my broth. And I think uh, this would be a good time for you to kind of go through that um, process of making broth, adding gelatin. But say you're on the uh, spectrum of having some IBS, Crohn's, celiacs, some sort of real bad um, stomach and gut uh, epithelium and, and biome sort of issues and, and of course making you very sensitive to things and and how that spectrum works with collagen and cartilage and all that yeah we have a saying i think it actually goes back to hippocrates or even earlier that health begins in the gut so whatever symptoms you're experiencing if you're working with an alternative doctor or other health practitioner the idea is to first heal the gut so the food that is ideal for that would be nourishing broth so or gelatin or the collagen so those are whole food supplements so we can do it either with the supplements or we can do it with the delicious tasty food and so many of us feel that the food is so warming and calming and nourishing and it's it it's happy. It's happy food when we're families are getting together and sharing sharing broth, soups and stews together. So if we're making broth, there's various ways we can enjoy it. Some people talk about it as um, having a cup of broth. So you can have a cup of broth that would be sort of a meat tea, uh, say have it instead of coffee or tea or some other drink. So that's very simple, or you can make any soup with it. You could make a bean soup with the broth base. You could make an oxtail soup or uh, borscht, just so many, so many options. Chicken noodle soup, chicken rice soup, and we can make stews. So there could be like beef stew, lamb stew, lamb shank stew. All of those would include as part of the liquid or the gravy, all the nourishing benefits of, of the broth. So in the summer, some people make aspic, sort of a more healthy jello, and of course, gravies. So there's just many options. And one of the things I recommend for many of my clients is that if they can't get in several cups of broth a day because they get tired of it or the kids refuse to eat it, 
instead of using water for rice, you can use broth and that improves the digestibility and it improves the taste. Very rich, delicious flavor. And Kayla, tell us about the nutrition content of broth. Well, that's going to depend on what you're putting in that stock pot. So there's different nutritional values, say to lamb or venison or turkey or chicken, they're all different. And besides that, it's going to vary depending on the age of the animal, the life that the animal has lived. So a pastured animal is going to have a, a different nutritional profile than a factory farmed one. And uh, also, it will depend on which bones you're putting in and how much meat you're putting in. So there's many, many factors. So people are always wanting to know, well, what exactly is the nutritional profile? Well, I don't know. It's going to depend from batch to batch. Uh, for example, uh, bone marrow. So if you're using shank bones or something where there's a lot of marrow, you can roast them first and maybe you're going to scoop out that marrow and eat it directly. And it's what Thoreau called, um, you know, he referred to marrow. He said, uh, lip deep and suck all the marrow out of life. You know, what a vivid quote. But it reminds us that all over the world, marrow is considered a, an energizing and rejuvenating food. So if we're eating the marrow directly out of the bones and then tossing the bones into the soup pot, there's not going to be so much marrow in that soup. But if you just throw in the bones with the marrow, you're going to have a very marrow-rich soup, if that makes sense. So that's one of the ways we can get all the nourishment of, of marrow in our soup. And then how uh, nutritious it's going to be might depend on how many joints we're using or chicken feet because that's going to affect the gelatin content. So a really nourishing broth will, when you refrigerate it, get jiggly like gelatin. And that's wonderful. But to get that in many cases, say if you roast the chicken, Underneath the chicken, you're going to find some gelatin. So you might be eating that then and there, so you're not going to have so much gelatin in your crock pot. So add some chicken feed, and that solves the problem. And if you don't have the chicken feed, you can always add some gelatin or collagen hydrolysate. So, so many ways we can go about this. So many nutrients, really, isn't it? Really, and some people uh, gather their bones and freeze them, and they'll make broth from a mixture of bones. So there's just so many options. Yeah. yeah. So, Kayla, tell us about some of the research you've done. Uh, you took it off of some older research from many decades ago, but there's some very interesting counterintuitive things that, that the audience really should know about, uh, about why broth is actually as nutritious as it is, and let's, you know, to separate some of the hype from the uh, actual reality. Well, there's definitely some hype these days. Uh, we're reading headlines about broth being the new kale or broth being the new green juice and all sorts of stuff. And it sounds like a fad. It sounds very trendy. And in fact, it is very trendy right now. But if it's a fad, it's a fad that goes all the way back to the Stone Age. And that was before people had uh, pots to cook in. <laughs> so... Uh, it goes way, way back. And I think the Stone Age people started noticing that when they were roasting, say, uh, chunks of meat over, over the hot fire, that some of that good juice was getting away. 
So they started using animal stomachs and leather, kind of making pots that way. And then somebody noticed that a turtle came conveniently complete with its own pot to cook in. And eventually people were making pots and, and out of metal. And we're very blessed today to have so many options. We can cook in crock pots or stock pots, stainless steel or glass, uh, many, many options. Yeah. So, and and what about the, the, the research you've done, though, with the, uh, you know, you were saying something about the calcium and, and, and all that? Yeah, that's where you start to put the thinking cap on. Because everybody thinks that if you're using bones, that you're going to get a lot of calcium because calcium is the primary mineral that we find in bones. So it's common sense that we'd get a lot of calcium, right? And a lot of bloggers were actually repeating a story about how a cup of broth will give you as much calcium as a cup of milk. Well, it turns out that's nonsense. And I first found a study from the 1930s that seemed to be a really good study. And they were looking at the levels of calcium and they found very little in bone broth. They actually found more in a bone broth that was made with celery and onion and getting it from the vegetables as opposed to the bones. And that was, that was quite a game changer. I, it was very, very hard to believe. I said, what? And we went and did some studies. Um, well, we had laboratory analysis and basically cooked the very, very best broth imaginable. Uh, couldn't have gotten a better broth, sent it into the lab to be analyzed for calcium. And our results came back just like those 1930s researchers. You got more with the celery and onion and not so much just from the bones. So this was quite a surprise, but then I got thinking, okay, so we're not finding the calcium. Is there something wrong with the laboratory analysis or is something else the factor that's helping people with osteopenia and osteoporosis and bone building? Because we had so many studies of people who said that they really gotten their bone strength and flexibility back after including bone broth in their diet for a few years. So then I realized, what do we know about bones? The key is the collagen framework. The collagen framework is why broth builds bones. And the minerals get slapped onto that framework, but the framework is actually more important than the minerals. It's like concrete and rebar. You, you don't get the structural strength from concrete unless you've got the rebar. So the collagen is the rebar in our bones. That's the collagen matrix. Some, that term is, is, is out there quite a bit. So that, that's what you're speaking of, correct? Yes, and that's where, where it becomes important to go back to the textbooks because that's how we learn about anatomy and physiology and, and the science. Uh, people get all these ideas about nutrition, and sometimes we really have to start over and take a really good look. And Kelly, you were telling us about um, people with cancer and um, really serious illnesses taking high doses of collagen, is that right? Yes. Um, uh, 
from the 19th century on, actually before that, we can go back to Hippocrates and Moses Maimonides in the 12th century and Galen, all the great historical physicians, they were all recommending broth for invalids and broth for healing and some very interesting history there. But one of the major people I like to think about is Florence Nightingale. And what she did was she enlisted the most famous celebrity chef of her era, uh, Alexis Soyer, and sent him to the Crimean War to cook broth for the soldiers, not just for their strength, but to help the wounded recover more quickly from, from their traumatic injuries. And in her book, Notes on Nursing, she talked about the fact that you, me, and everybody at some point in our lives were most likely going to be nursing someone, whether it's a child or a spouse or a parent or a friend, that it was a book about nursing for all of us as opposed to professional nurses. So that was really interesting. And all the old cookbooks, the 19th century and up to the mid-20th century, cookbooks always had a chapter on convalescent cookery or invalid cookery. So the old Fanny Farmer and Mrs. Beecher cookbooks, they always had that chapter. So people have known for a long time that the broth would help with digestion, it would help with uh, recovering from injuries and recovering from flu and infectious diseases. And in fact, chicken soup is called Jewish penicillin. Yeah, no, it's, um, I think we can go to, from here to like, uh, when you go to traditional cultures, uh, you know, when you were saying that, mentioning the thing that's kind of a faddish, trendy thing today, you know, you were right, from the Stone Age on, um, broth has been a part of traditional cultures, and, um, you know, we, we, when we talk about uh, various cultures like uh, the Latin American cultures, uh the Asian cultures, there's lots of great ways that people who can't even cook and make broth can actually get a cheap meal in various ways. Well, in most cultures around the world, uh, for reasons of frugality or necessity or whatever you want to call it, uh, nose-to-tail eating is, is, what, is what people do. And by nose-to-tail eating, we mean honoring all parts of the animal, honoring the animal by not just being wasteful and going for the the steaks and chops. But yeah, let's let's the get the yeah the audience right. The audience should think whole animal eating, not whole foods. Eat the whole animal. Don't think about whole foods. <laughs> Well, you know, we're blessed in a way. Uh, a place like Whole Foods, the, the people who go for the skinless, um, boneless chicken breasts, they pay a premium and the rest of us can buy all the legs and the thighs and the bone, you know, the meat with the bones for much cheaper. <laughs> that, that, that's right. So, yeah, no, it, it, all these cultures, what fascinates me when you look at traditional cooking, whether it's French cuisine or Vietnamese cuisine or Chinese cuisine or Mongolian cuisine or Mexican cuisine, they all use the, the entire animal and, and broths and soups and caldos and um, the pho, the Vietnamese pho, these are all uh, the Tom Gatka guys with uh, the Thai um, cuisine, they're all staples of those indigenous cultures and they, they've been that way for centuries. 
And it's, it's amazing. I've traveled quite a bit. and Wherever I've gone in the world, there's been some kind of native soup, and I've really enjoyed most of them. And when I was in San Miguel de Allende, I was enjoying menudo and all that tripe in there. And my daughter's from Vietnam, and we have a lot of pho, and there's a lot of Vietnamese restaurants here. And at some places, we'll actually find the bones in, in the bowl. <laughs> So I, I think um, adventurous eating brings us some amazing healthy foods. That's part of the naughty nutritionist repertoire, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. Now, did you know that broth can increase the libido? <laughs> Who would have thought, right? <laughs> is there Who some right, is some biblical writing on this? I <laughs> uh, didn't find the biblical writing. But um, a lot of the early advertisements for beef extract or, you know, the bullions and those early products like the companies like Bovril, they would talk about how broth is, would make a man of you and uh, or how the Bovril beef extract would do that. So... There you go. And many, many people through history and cultures around the world have talked about aphrodisiac soups. So things like rooster testicle soup. So that was shark, shark that fin was soup, right? Increase the libido. Shark fin soup for longevity, elixir of longevity. Yeah. And think about things like uh, velvet deer antler. Now, that's not really a soup, but that's that's cartilage product. Yeah, and they make that into a tea, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's it's something, and, and one of the things I think that the audience should know, because a lot of people are just busy, and, and it le- the wonderful thing about living in the U.S. is that Ethnic food is just ubiquitous now. You can find Thai food, you can find Vietnamese pho, and you can find Mexican restaurants all over the place. So, you know, yeah, it's not, it's not your Panera or your Mimi's Cafe or any, or your Applebee's or your Chili's or any of these mega chains out there, but finding your local ethnic cuisine, you'll usually be able to find those ethnic soups. And they're actually quite reasonable as restaurant food goes. Very much. Uh, uh, we really enjoy it. It's very easy. It's inexpensive. And, of course, we make broth at home as well. But, you know, along with that about broth boosting the libido, it, it really, the underlying message is anything that makes you healthy in general is going to increase your libido. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's... Uh... <laughs> we can keep on that one for a while. Um, do I have to pay you two dollars a minute for this? Oh, that would that would be great. <laughs> well, come on, we can do yeah, better you than would that. Say that too, Peter. Yeah, I know. I would. You know, in in Guatemala they have a saying, and it goes, "Only drunks, children, and crazy men speak the truth." So, uh, yeah, and, 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 don't ask which one you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm probably yeah, but but you know, we will have to include naughty nutritionists to that one. Well, a little a little crazy is good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but you know, for for your your followers though, let's let's talk about broth and how important it is for fitness. Absolutely, this is the meat of it. 
So, so many athletes these days are eating tremendous amounts of animal protein, uh, lots of eggs, steaks, chops, and so forth. But an important part is that nose to tail eating again. And we really need what we find in broth, the proline, glycine, and glutamine, those uh, conditionally essential amino acids. They will help protect the joints and help you with endurance. And if you are injured, it will help recovery. So it's a very important thing. And some of the old time bodybuilders and stuff, they used to know that, but then it was forgotten probably along with the steroids, protein and all that stuff. And the advent of yeah. steroids to shortcut the process. Yeah. Um, and, and I have a, there's another reason I do broth is, is I, I watched a lot of endurance athletes and they literally feel like they're burned out at the end of the season. And many of them wind up with, um, very brittle bones, even though they're out in the sun and they're, they're eating okay, but most of them are fueling themselves with way too many carbohydrates. And, and one of the things I see when we really incorporate broth is it's a proactive way of, getting that collagen matrix and other mineral and then the mineral salts that are in there to keep replacing what you're putting out because endurance sports tend to be lots of volume, lots of perspiration, uh, and lots of activity. And, you know, these people are literally burning themselves out and it's not unlike what, what I've seen traveling in third world countries where you see a, a young woman who's, you know, in her late teens, early twenties, she's got two kids down and one on her breast and you can see that she's almost gotten the life literally sucked out of her. I mean, she's, you know, hunched over like an old woman with osteoporosis. And I think that that also occurs to a, to a degree to somebody who's doing any huge volume of exercise and not actively replenishing themselves. Sure. And uh, many of the early fitness proponents and well, I'm thinking of Eugene Sando, and he was a he was up on the vaudeville stage showing off his physique. But he was a very bright guy, studying all the 19th century studies on gelatin, and incorporating that in his diet, and then going into people like Armand Tanny and Vince Gironda, and they were including Knox gelatin as part of their whole uh, protocol for eating. And of course, some of them were, well, Gerondo was doing like a dozen eggs a day and a couple gallons of raw milk. And most of us, if we drank that much milk, we'd be getting quite fat from it. So he was getting a lot of the nutrition that we do better with getting from, from the broth. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the better place to get our glycine and proline and glutamine. Well, and, and, but you know, you were... Oh, and, and that's the key is like when you when you do the whole animal or, or nose to tail eating, you're essentially getting all the nutritional nutritional balance that we actually you know, evolved to have because Americans typically way too much muscle meat. I think that's true in, in Australia, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah, you're not. Yeah. And so it's it's pretty clear that too much muscle meat is not a good thing. But when you when you combine it with organ meat and then the skin and connective tissue, which would generally come from broth, it's a very powerful tool that you need actually very little of um, to become the most, you know, to, to get to your genetic potential. 
Yeah, a lot of people also don't realize that steaks and chops can be very hard to digest, and that becomes a factor also with children. If you've got picky eaters, then in many cases the long-cooked stew and uh, soup where the meat becomes extremely tender, easier to eat and digest. But I wanted to mention that back in the 1930s, there were studies at the Mayo Clinic on gelatin and endurance. And some of those were conducted by Russell, um, Russell Morse Wilder, the same guy who invented the ketogenic diet and who also did a lot of studies on diabetes. So they were doing studies on endurance. Uh, one of the bizarre ones was gelatin plus wine versus wine alone for, for uh, cyclists. <laughs> so that seems like a pretty strange study to me. Wow. <laughs> oh, those cyclists would have loved that. Yeah, and they could have. I think we'll... <laughs> Well, I'm a fan of wine, but I don't think I want wine before I go on a bike ride. <laughs> well, well, the, the interesting, no, the, the interesting thing we found, uh, or at least I found, is when you're fat adapted and can easily segue into ketosis, wine and and fructose actually can be a very potent energy source. Now, I, I don't suggest drinking wine while you're exercising, but the night before having a couple glasses of wine or some hard spirits or we're having some fruit actually when you look at the pathway and understand it in in the context of of being fat adapted which is really our our natural metabolic state um the next day that the the fat that's made from the alcohol and fructose is readily converted back into both ketones and glucose to meet the metabolic need Well, isn't it amazing that the man who invented the, the the ketogenic diet was also involved with gelatin studies? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty interesting stuff. So, Kayla, um, we want to really kind of get your name out there because you've really been a pioneer in my, my book and um, certainly other people's books. And, and like me, you're not afraid to say what what's on your mind and what you have uh, found to be factual and truthful content. So um, let's um, wrap this up by your book. Your book. What is your book? The book on bra, so people can access that. The broth book is titled "Nourishing Broth: An Old Fashioned Remedy for the Modern World," and my co-author is Sally Fallon Morell. And we have a website, nourishingbroth.com. So if you want to know what I'm recommending in terms of the best crock pots and stock pots and collagen products or cartilage or whatever, or you've got any questions, you know, why your broth isn't gelling or what's going on, why your broth doesn't have good flavor, uh, that's the place to go. Frequently asked questions, welcome. And um, my other book is The Whole Soy Story, The Dark Side of America's Favorite Health Food. You have several things on your website. Your website? Uh, yes, drkayladaniel.com. And people can get a free little ebook called The Fats of Life. So a little naughtiness there, but it has to do with how fat is really important for the way your body and brain is going to work. Oh yeah, and that's my that's one of my pet peeves because 
you know, with especially with uh, females, uh, the time when when young women are developing, and it's a time when they need to be both fat adapted and having a cholesterol rich, fat rich diet is a time when they're starting to eat the exact wrong types of food, and it just I've seen so many women literally ruined by that wrong message we've gotten not not just the cultural messages of body image and all but 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 the dietary advice that's gone along with it it's just you know one of my good friends is nikki kimball who's one of the top uh, ultra runners in the world and she traces her depression back to uh, dr barb arnott telling her and her team of uh, college level olympic level biathletes that they were all too fat and they had to get the fat of their diet need a high carb diet Oh, what a shame. And, you know, just normal girls when they're teenagers, so many of them fall for the whole vegan myth and they're, they're compassionate, caring about the animals. And this is a prime time for their bodies and brains to develop. And a lot of those girls don't want to become pregnant as teenagers, but that catches up with them. And then they're having fertility problems when they do want to become pregnant, say in their 30s. Yeah, no, it's kind of funny because yesterday I went running up in Sequoia National Park and there was a, a group of cross-country runners from San Diego and one young man was, was a vegan. And, and, you know, it's just it's just such a shame because these, these kids have all the right intentions, but they're getting the wrong information and being led down these paths. And, and even a young male um, trying to develop well, you know, they're, they're, they're compromising themselves unknowingly. They are, and we hear about so many uh, vegan males having lost interest in sex, for example, and many of them think that's enlightened, but that's just not healthy. Mother Nature didn't design it that way. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And you, I guess you don't realize when you're young, though, that um, what you're doing to your body no, people don't. Um, my my kids are teenagers, 18, and well, actually, my son's 22 now. But uh, they're they have so many vegan friends. It's it's really a battle to to help your children to understand that an omnivorous diet is what they really need to to be very healthy. And then also that the omnivorous diet includes the organ meats, the heart, the gizzards, the kidney, the, you know, different, the liver. That is so important. And of course, using the carcass for broth. Okay. Well, Naomi, anything else for Dr. Daniel today? No, I think she's told us a lot of naughty things today and a lot of very interesting things. So thank you so much for, um, doing this again for us today, Carla. Well, thank you. Yeah, Kayla, thanks again. We're going to have you on soon, and uh, there's going to be a lot of great topics we'll be discussing. I look forward to it. You are listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, sponsored by Vespa.